Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I'm Carla Chamberlain, Professor of Applied Linguistics and Communication Arts and Sciences at the Pennsylvania State University, Abington College, um, near Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. I'm joined by Matt Kahn, Director of the Center for International Understanding and Assistant Professor of ESL at the Community College of Philadelphia. And Mac and I are here today to talk to Ingrid Piller, Distinguished Professor of Applied Linguistics at Macquarie University in Sydney. Um, Dr. Piller is author of the award-winning and best-selling books, Linguistic Diversity and Social Justice and Intercultural Communication, A Critical Introduction. She is editor-in-chief of the international journal Multilingua, editor of the blog Language on the Move, and author of numerous publications about multilingualism and social justice. Mac and I uh, each came to know Ingrid's work in different ways. In my own work in intercultural communication and TESOL and social linguistics, I was drawn to Ingrid's voice that forces us to question how language and culture have been defined historically to reinforce linguistic hierarchies and social structures that benefit the privileged few. We have watched such inequalities play out with destructive results in the US. And in Philadelphia, where Black Lives Matter protests and voting procedures are being challenged, um, and where current pandemic, um, the current pandemic disproportionately affects minorities, the job of language educators goes beyond teaching about grammar. Ingrid's, Ingrid's work reminds us how language and culture and attitudes towards language and culture create and maintain inequalities that profoundly shape our lives. Next, so Matt. Um, it was 2000, 2009, December 2009, um, when I went to American University of Sharjah and Zaid University. They were hosting a conference on fostering multiliteracies through education. And I was a naive doctoral student presenting my work. And after the conference was over, um, I saw an email. And that email, somebody was seeking my permission to publish my work on language on the move. And when I saw that, it was uh, Professor Ingrid Piller. And my doctoral supervisor had talked to me about Dr. Piller's work. So first, I did not believe that it was from Professor Piller asking me to publish my work. So I asked my colleague, I said, hey, can you see this is from Professor Ingrid Piller? He said, yes. So this is how we became friends. And since then, I saw Dr. Piller as, as a mentor throughout my PhD and after my PhD. And visiting language on the move regularly uh, gave me a very different view of linguistics, which is, which is not uh, very traditional, I would say. Um, my doctoral work uh, on signage and linguistic ethnography dropped heavily drawn her. And as I said that throughout my PhD and after my PhD, she has been the shaping person on my scholarship, on my personality. And I'm so thrilled and honored that I am here in her presence today and interviewing her. I'm super, super excited and would like to thank Carla to include me in this one. Thank you. Thanks for being Thank you very much Beth, for having me. And I just had to um, say, I remember that conference in Charter very fondly. It was um, a really international conference in an Arabic speaking context and in some, at the same time in an English speaking context. So very diverse. And um, we were actually handing out awards for the best paper of the day. And um, Khan had actually disappeared by the time we kind of would have got around to announcing that this was the best paper of the day. Thanks, too. <laughs> right. Thank you. Well, we have a lot of questions for you, <laughs> but obviously we won't be able to get to everything. Um, I use both of your your books in my in my classes, and I just um, as soon as I found them. Um, I just thought, yes, yes, this is it. This is what I want my students to be reading because I feel like I before that, I was just cobbling together all these different um, chapters and articles um, um, from applied linguistics and other sources um, that take a critical look at language and teaching and culture. 
Um, but here, I feel like, yes, you've brought all of this together. So I'm really, really grateful for that. And I also um, think that, at least what I'm reading, what you do, def- obviously, your scholarly work is is amazing. But I also feel that this is there's passion there. There's a mission there. And I wonder, um, like, what defining moments, you know, in your life, like, led you to that? I mean, you're, you're multilingual. I, you know, I've read <laughs> about your experiences, but... Was, was there anything anything in particular that really like motivated you to just just pursue like linguist social justice and um yeah. it's a difficult question to answer and i kind of always resist those like um i don't know road to the masters now so i think we all make our lives and careers in 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 path and 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 in journeys and um i was educated in um rural area of southern bavaria in an area where um grammar schools didn't exist so high schools didn't exist until of about my generation so i'm um the person my generation from my village actually to go to high school to graduate from high school so um of course my upbringing has shaped me um when I received my higher education in Germany, but I studied um, to become a teacher, mm-hmm. specifically a language teacher. So um, the languages that I focused on were English, German, and um, Spanish. And um, from there, I went on various exchanges to the UK. And my first postdoctoral position was actually in the US at the College as a visiting professor in the English department there. And um, when my career has taken me to various other places, including um, the United Arab Emirates, Switzerland, and United Um, I have uh, students um, who are getting a minor in, in TESOL with um, the hopes of going abroad and having the chance to teach. Um, and. I think I'd, I'd mentioned to you that for, for many, it's, you know, like this is a kind of once in a lifetime opportunity to be able to, to do this. Um, but they are also, and I, I'm glad they're questioning this, they're questioning the moral aspects of it. And some of them feel conflicted about um, wanting to go abroad and teach English and get experience. And I mean, that's what I did, you know, many, many years ago. Um, and it, it changed my life. It changed my world. But at the same time, I think back, I thought, oh, my gosh, I was part of this whole system of Englishization of, you know, of Korea where I was working. But my students now today are asking me, how do they do this? How do they reconcile this? And, um, well, I told them I would ask you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, look, I mean, it's a difficult question, really. I mean, I've been thinking about this, but it kind of flagged this question to me. And then... I think it's the same answer actually that we get to anyone who works in an unjust system. I mean, we live in an imperfect world and, and imperfect is probably um, a euphemism. We live in very difficult structures, but that doesn't mean we should not act at all. I mean, it's the same question that they could ask any white person, you know, should we go and teach or should we just shut up? And um, of course we should. But at the same time, um, I think when you can't give up being a teacher um, because you have a particular identity, the same goes for, you know, should men teach women? I mean, that's all positions of privilege. Um, I have carry these moral questions, I think. And um Coming back to the specific question of should um, Americans or native speakers of English, should they become teachers of English? Look, um, I I still don't see why not. I mean, um, as long, and I think that's the caveat, as long as they also pay attention to um, the kinds of structures we've been talking about, and as long as they teach under the assumption that you know, they're teaching the next generation of teachers. Because I think one fundamental problem that can make the privileged teaching, um, the disadvantage so difficult is 
that very often it's on the assumption like the privileged identity is forever the teacher identity and um, non-native speakers or people of color or women will never be as good as and, and that kind of assumption is pernicious. So I think we need to teach structurally to teach so that our students will replace ourselves, that better be the next generation. And that to me is, um, it's not an ethical and a linguistic question, but it's the question that any teacher needs to ask themselves all the time, really. Um, how is my teaching in flat to my students and how does it contribute to um, question of social justice, how does it reinforce existing structures and how can I help to be part of the solution as opposed to be part of the problem? Yeah, exactly. So Ingrid, um, uh, I have, I have a question about the loss of loss of multiliteracy, mm -hmm. uh, in my family. So we moved to United States in 2013. Uh, my wife, I, and four kids. And uh, when we moved, uh, three of them, three of our four kids were bilingual and biliterate with English and Urdu. And the the youngest one was three years old, so uh, he wasn't bilingual, he was only monolingual. Uh, Ingrid, in these seven years, I have seen in my family, my monolingual ones, they have, although they, they can speak Urdu and they do speak Urdu, they've totally forgotten Urdu script. They cannot read, nor they can write. So when my wife and I, we make conscious effort, my little boy, he says, when you love your Urdu language so much, why on earth you brought us to United States? And, and he asked these questions to us, because for him, United States mean it's English only. Mm -hmm. So, and, and this question is not of that child. I come across this question from so many people around, um, from political debates and all these. So my question is, in such a case as I am in, what, what agency do I have as a father, as as a family member to help uh, my student, my kids, you know, uh, retain their language heritage? Yeah, that's a difficult question. And I think one that um, many, many migrant parents struggle with. And I think there are two, two um, aspects that I'd like to speak to. One is the literacy question. And that's sort of a very typical pattern, of course, in migrant families that you actually have um, the second generation, they are bilingual, they can speak the language, but they don't have good or at all literacy skills and don't know how to read and write the other languages. That of course, um, I mean, it's great that they can speak in the family or whatever, but at the same time, it really cuts them off from the cultural heritage of the language and the literature and also the, um, the kind of academic and cognitive development that actually comes through literacy in any language. So of course, literacy is extremely important, but at the same time, the hardest to maintain. And of course, it's not surprising that it's hard to maintain because, you know, in any context, it's the school's job. The parent's job is oracy and oral skills. And that thing happens in the family. And we have outsourced literacy teaching to schools and that true pretty much universally. So um, in order to be able to maintain literacy in a language that is not the school language, um, I think you have to invest like a phenomenal amount of time and resources. And um, that's just, you know, usually not a feasible proposition for most people. So um, it really only works if you actually have community schools are if you have the support of the school. And that's why I actually think um, to have language learning and bilingualism in the school system is so important. And so 
One thing that we all need to be lobbying for in these monolingual countries, all these countries with a monolingual ideologies as um, the United States, but also Australia, is actually um, languages in the school system. And I think that actually is something that speaks also to the non-migrant population, um, because often bilingualism is seen that this is a migrant problem, right? And it's a community problem, and you know, you do whatever you want, just don't speak it in public, and leave us alone. I mean, but in order for actually languages to be valued, of course, everyone needs to see something in them. And um, coming from a context where, um, you know, even in, in continental Europe, you can't actually become an educated person if you don't learn another language. I mean, at the very minimum, you have to learn English. Otherwise, I mean, that's part of education. And um, in, in many continents, in, in, the, like, the European ideal, for instance, is that every citizen learns two foreign languages, so the national language, um, English, and the language of a neighboring country. Um, in many parts of the world, bilingual education has always been a reality and um, is not unusual at all. And so um, the Anglo-Saxon world at the moment is really a bit of an exception there. And I think one... Um, I think that we just need to push for also is the importance of um, learning another language. To me, it's like you know, math or learning a language arts. It really opens your minds in ways that you just can't understand if you had if you haven't had that experience of language learning. And um, so, it's not only to me, it's not only a, a social justice issue that affects like minorities and migrant people. It's really for everyone. We should lobby for everyone that the language learning about something to you that gives you an insight into another culture and into another world. And you really can read about things. You can just involves you. And in the same way that I think, you know, no one debates that. Oh, should we really learn math? We shouldn't let children learn math, and that's not, you know, like that much time. Like, just consider it natural. And um, languages are the same, really. They should be um, a normal, expected part of becoming an educated person. Yeah, yeah. Um, interestingly, I um, asked my students in an introduction to social linguistics class. Now, at my campus. Um, we are 57% minority. I don't know that we don't know the exact number of multilingual students. You don't can't collect all of that information, but um, quite a few. Typically in a class, I have three monolingual students, monolingual English students, and the rest are um, multilingual. So I asked them, are we a monolingual or multilingual nation? And they, these are, you know, young people, and they say, we're multilingual. And it's really... I was taken aback the first time, but then I have them go out and, you know, look, <laughs> make observations, and then kind of come back to me and say, how are we mono monolingual or how are we multilingual? And of course, you know, they, they realize then that um, we are multilingual in the private sphere. It's okay on the social, you know, to talk to your family, to use multiple languages with your friends, but then you get into the public sphere and it's English. So yeah. I get Kind of look at that but um i was surprised the first time when they all came back and said we're multilingual so i was like we are and it's statistically but um not with you know it's, it's still a monolingual mindset yeah 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 it's really institutions that reinforce this idea of i mean we we have to operate institutionally in a monolingual world and um that's what makes it so difficult and really also creates this disconnect between the lived experience of many people. Um, but I, I also agree. I mean, it's sort of beautiful to see actually that there is a younger generation who is much more, um, much more attuned to different languages and also keen to maintain languages. I mean, one thing that I see a lot is actually but when is this resistance in young children in particular? So primary school is like the time when they when they say things like, so why did, I, did you bring us to this country? Or we are in the U.S. now, so let's speak English. And so 
it's really also this developmental sort of stage where they want to get in is that they really buy into one learning them. And um, as parents, I think you have to learn work a bit to kind of get them through these couple of years because by the time they're teenagers, um, having another language is actually um, a source of distinction. And um, that's when they'll enjoy their languages again. So um, I think if you can support your child remembering that kind of a similar space that yeah. you bring better through, then actually um, they they will thank you for it. Once uh, ab absolutely correct, Ingrid. Uh, my boys who are in uh, universities, one is in Swarthmore, the other is in Denison. Both of them are now so much in love with Urdu they, and, and they are at that state. And it, you are 100% correct. Mm -hmm. But uh, the little one, you know, he's still uh, reacting. Hey, why, why to U.S. when you would love Urdu so much? Why didn't you stay back? Yeah, you're so right. Yeah, you're so right. Yeah. The, the, yeah. I've experienced that with my daughter. I was determined to, I didn't think she was going to, you know, be speaking French, but I, I spoke French to her from the day she was born, just trying to, you know, see, I don't know, just see what would happen. And she just resisted it. She she got to the point we would read a lot of children's books and she could read them. But then at a certain point, she just, you know, didn't want, didn't want to have anything to do with it. Like, like you said, elementary school. And now she's studying French. So. Oh, nice. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so it did come back. Yeah. So, um, all right, I'll I'll move on to uh, an, an, another topic, and that is, um, you know, language and and the pandemic, mm -hmm. and um, your recent special issue in Multilingua. You you had said that you received, I think, hundreds of proposals, and you decided to focus on China, and then you also just recently had a, I think it was a symposium this past weekend, and I just wondered. Um, since the, the even just the publication things are changing so quickly with this pandemic um what have you seen change in terms of you know language issues and public health and if you could do a, a another special issue part two um where, where do you think you would go with it right um look when we when we um sent out the call for papers in march and we received uh, as you said over 200 abstracts from really around the globe so um really a lot of interest but at the same time we decided on china then uh, just to make our ta selection pass easier i mean because we felt like china was two three months ahead in the pandemic they were at that point winning the fight against the pandemic and it sort of seemed to us like there maybe was a course split and you know other nations would go through a phase of outburst but then get it under control in the same way that china had done and of course uh, that has now been proven completely wrong so um at the same time you know i think it's a really important study to just see what a very um, different country has done it as a very different setup from the rest of the setup and um, one that we often don't think of as a highly linguistically diverse nation because China in fact is incredibly linguistically diverse so um, there was the standard language and the various um, varieties of Chinese that are often called dialect but in reality are not necessarily mutually intelligible so they really constitute different languages when it comes to everyday interaction and communication and then there are um over 55 counties minorities so different languages in the country um we've heard a lot about mongolian recently which is one of the larger minority languages but um also Southwest China is very linguistically diverse, so many different languages. And then um, China is increasingly becoming a migrant destination for international students in particular, um, particularly from places like um, Southeast Asia and um, Africa, the developing world in particular. So an aspect of migration that I think in the West is not being recognized at all. So, we have a very linguistically diverse situation and so interesting challenges when it comes to how do you communicate timely, high quality information 
um, as is necessary in a pandemic or in any crisis? And how do you do that? Mm -hmm. I have a special issue. Now, how would I do it differently? Or how would, how, what would the sequel? And like, um... <laughs> sorry, go ahead. Oh, I said part two, right. Okay. Oh, yes. So the sequel, um, two aspects that I, I would want to do. And I mean, I think there are really others, but um, one thing is actually to look at situations in the global South where, um, again, we have high di linguistically diverse, um, situations with indigenous minorities and particularly being particularly disadvantaged and um, increasingly, exceedingly high risk of the pandemic. And um, my students in um, master's course I'm teaching devoted to literacies actually did many research projects this semester. And I just want to share um, some of their research findings. So for instance, one of my students, um, Kinsa Abbas, she actually did a hand that being particularly of interest to you, a study of how information about COVID-19 was communicated in Khyber Pashtun province in Pakistan. And wow. it is a highly linguistically diverse um, province. I think there are 18 different languages spoken okay. there. Uh, most of the population actually is not literate in those languages. So if they um, had an education, they would be literate Urdu and maybe English. Yeah, yeah. Um, all the public information, all the campaigns that she looked at was published predominantly in English and a bit in Urdu, but nothing yeah. in any of the other languages. Wow. And even in literature, interestingly, um, some of the information was really completely nonsensical. So Chishabat's posters were, um, there was a sheep and the sheep was crossed out by, and then said something like dumb, dumb, or animals. Right? Wow. I mean, sheep herding is like one of the key livelihoods. That's it's right. absurd information. True. And of course, communicated through the wrong channels because posters are not actually something that Right. works particularly well. And um, another student, um, Alexander Hermosov from Peru, also um, had similar findings. She also looked at posters that were actually translated into um, the indigenous languages of the Andes, various languages, um, and she looked at Petra posters in particular. And one thing that she found was, so again, it's not the ideal communication channel to actually provide posters, but also the communication strategy relied heavily on um, the internet and um, conflicts where there actually isn't widespread mobile coverage. And um, again, she found information like, you know, wash your hands um, all the time and don't forget to turn off the tap after you've washed your hands. That's one of the things I did say in Ketra, except um, if you know these villages, it, they don't have running water. So again, the information sure. is, um, so there's so much wrong. And it's again, I think a Western mass communication model that is being applied there. You work through posters, you work through national languages, you have one set of communication, one set of information, whether that's properly relevant or not. And um, another of my students, um, Yudha Hidayat from Indonesia, he actually suggested like um, one of the key information channels that people in Lombok province trust is through the mosques. And there is an established communication channel, like how you share information across villages. Um, through loudspeakers on the mosques and, and through mosques. And in that one, it wasn't used. So I'm like, indigenous communication channels on the grounds are neglected in favor of, um, you know, those kinds of information channels that don't actually get the information to the people. Yeah, that I can yeah. another research. Very fascinating, yeah. very fascinating findings. It's yeah. like, um, getting a model from somewhere else mm -hmm. and applying somewhere else without regard to anything. Mm -hmm. Wow. Wow. Well, yeah. Modalities are, are so important and, um, they, yeah, they shape the communication, but also uh, that's 
you were you were talking about it. I was just going to say, what is the best way to reach different populations? Certainly, the internet isn't. Uh, it's not even going to reach me. I'm not even on social media, um, you know. And I don't. I. I yeah, it's just fascinating that um, people try to apply the exact same model what works here to, to right. This and um, yeah, I see a lot of signage here. Um, obviously, there's you know every newspaper has um, like free COVID information. Every newspaper online, so you don't have to be a, a subscribed to the newspaper, but you still have to to have the setup to go to and go to that newspaper. You know to have the um, online resources and i know new york times translates into spanish but that's it and yeah. then the other languages um, well, so it brings us to the question of trust and i think one thing that we've seen in the pandemic and particularly in countries like the us i think but um really many other parts of the world is of course a complete breakdown of trust and that's why actually the fake news and disinformation proliferate because um, there is a lot of communication going on, but people don't actually know where it comes from. It doesn't seem like, um, you know, it's just where these sources and part of the problem to, to my mind is actually the um, communication channels don't match, the languages don't match, the, the sources are anonymous. You don't actually make use of the kind of communication channels that um, people trust and that people know. And ultimately, um, a crisis response, of course, needs to be led by the state, but it also needs to be local. It needs to be, and, and, and the state kind of needs to enable local action. And um, those kinds of countries that really have been able to respond at all kinds of levels, but at the national level, at institutional levels, but really also at community level and mobilize people who will actually door knock, uh, people who um, translate. And loudspeakers have been very successfully used in um, parts of China, rural parts of Vietnam, for instance. So the kind of communication channels that are not meant to work. Um, the other thing that um, was pointed out by that student that I mentioned who worked in um, um, Khyber Pashti province mm -hmm. um, was also that just communication to be successful actually needs to be filtered like through tribal leaders and it needs to actually go through families in order to reach both men and women. Yeah. And if that doesn't happen, it's kind of, you could just as well save the paper you're printing on, you're printing your flyers on. Right. And, and you can't even identify those pathways of trust. You know, I mean, it's different for everyone. And I also know, like, students, we're, we're, there's such a abundance of information, and sometimes people just end up shutting it all off because they don't even know where to turn to anymore um and like you said they, they don't really trust any sources and that's that's definitely been a big problem i hope it gets a little bit better we'll see we have some hope <laughs> yes we live in hopes that's the moral and stars mm -hmm. yeah uh ingrid can i can i ask a question on multilingual research uh, changing a topic a little bit. Um, uh, when I see uh, research on multilingualism, uh, really do I come across uh, references of a scholarship outside English? So uh, the proponents of multilingual multilingualism are often restricted to monolingual literature itself. Um, when I was reading your book, um, surprisingly, positively, I came across the reference of Isfahan in, mm -hmm. in, the, in the 17th century. And I was like <laughs> taken aback. I said, wow, this is, this is new for me. Uh, that uh, started this thinking in me that, you know, our multilingual research, scholarship is mostly monolingual. And it's, it's a paradox. 
So I was I was thinking that I would see your comment. And before you do that, I also wanted to show you the diploma, the degree that my university, Karachi University, gave me. Uh, it's it's a very bilingual. You see, half half Urdu, mm -hmm. and half half English. So it's like the space is divided between Urdu and English, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas my my degree in Lancaster was absolutely monolingual. It's almost impossible to imagine that in America, a university giving a degree with English and Spanish side by side. Mm -hmm. So the, the point I'm making is this one, is that sometimes when we go out of the box to, to nations, uh, we find lots of things, you know, which are so interesting and illuminating, like in the case of Isfahan that you talked about, or like in the case of Karachi University giving degrees in, you know, Urdu and English. Any, any comment? Yes, look, um, I couldn't agree more. Um, you're not 100% correct. Um, our scholarship is exceedingly monolingual, exceedingly English-centric. It's not just monolingual, it's English, actually. And um, that is a problem precisely because of the examples we discussed earlier. Because, of course, if we do research in a multilingual context, and are only various linguistic side of things we're bound to miss, you know, them in the other side. So that's um, obvious. It's a fundamental problem, I think, of research across the board, actually. And I wrote a paper in 2016 in the Journal of Multicultural Discourses about monolingual ways of seeing multilingualism. And that was a response to research by Anthony Lillicott, who um, had looked at a sample of research in multilingualism and just looked at in what kind of context does that multilingualism occur? I mean, there are the research concepts. And you find that about a third actually have no context at all. It was just like, you know, yeah. context-free theorizing about multilingualism. So that was a really large part. And I think that's that is a consequence of the English centrism of the field, because if you actually only see English, then, you know, multilingualism is something airy scenery that's out there, but is not really banned to a particular context. And then the large, uh, another 40%, I would say, I forget the exact numbers, I think you can look them up. Um, a very large chunk was then about bilingualism in the English-speaking world, so UK, US, Australia, um, with migrant or indigenous populations, mostly migrant populations, and um, then a, a smaller chunk of research in other contexts, multilingualism in other contexts, but um, really most of it through the lens of English. and. Um, I guess a big problem, of course, here are publishing structures and um, how different researchers value, valued and evaluated and assessed. And there is um, in all fields across the world, of course, this assumption built into all kinds of metrics that like English publications are better automatically. And so that puts many academics um, mm -hmm. across the world really under pressure to published through the medium of English, but in order to um, be able to publish through the medium of English and particularly to publish in international journals, you need to work with frameworks that appeal to the metropolis in the center right. because you better be published if you have some, you know, I mean, framework, conceptual framework is really, really important and uh, being part of the discussion of the conversation you only can be part of the catalyst of the international global conversation if you actually speak to the concerns that are there in the journal. So it's not only about language choice. The key problem really is that this English centrism changes the content of our research because we consistently ignore local considerations, as I've just said, with regard to the way COVID is communicated 
in rural areas in the global south. I mean, this kind of um, ignorance is in part related to English Western centric ways of doing things. So it's really to um to to the great detriment of everyone that mm -hmm. these kinds of relationships pertain. Um now um, the question is always how can we change that? And um, you know, we are we are little people and um one thing that I think as university teachers, one thing that we should be lobbying for in terms of policy, for instance, is that actually anyone who becomes a language teacher should actually also have learned the language. So it seems to me like really strange that we continue to like graduate linguistics degrees or TESOL degrees and there was no study requirement to have studied another language. Um, that to me is something that we can do, for instance. Um, one thing that I try to do um, through language on the move, for instance, because we also have a great opportunity with digital communication. So it's no longer either or. I mean, is the traditional paper journal of course, it was more like, you know, you have one shot in it and you have a right. page limit, but that no longer pertains in the digital world either. So um, the, we can actually create real kind of academic and community spaces. And that's the responsibility ultimately. I mean, everyone sort of needs to um, come to the table and try and also disseminate their research. So those of us who work in the West and who work through the medium of English, I think um, the, the, the bare minimum that we should be doing for our research is actually to also create translations and mm -hmm. uh, create other channels. So that's, for instance, what we've been getting with the special issue that we've just published on linguistic diversity in a time of crisis. Um, the, um, the, the symposium that you mentioned that we just had this weekend, we actually ran two parallel sessions. Uh, they ran in parallel, but we ran two sessions. One was an English language channel and the session, and the other was a Chinese mm -hmm. session. And um, brought together um, key researchers in the Chinese space and really targeted at some... Um, you know, a Chinese audience and mm -hmm. try to um, disseminate the research beyond those who speak English. Because ultimately, if we look at it from a global perspective, it's of course only a very, a, a very small number of privileged few who actually speak English to or have proficiency in English to the kind of level that allows them to, um, you know, absorb academic information. So, um, yeah, these are yeah. some of the things that Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah we need um, changes in, in, in publishing. You know, um, I've been on editorial boards and I'm an editor now, and I know that the publishers, they only want to publish in English. And, you know, it's a, a journal about interculturalism. And, <laughs> um, yeah, they're resistant. So we find ourselves having to... Um, insist on English in in the field of intercultural communication and intercultural education. And that's cutting out so many people. Um, but I don't know how to fix it right away. But I like, but definitely. Large academic papers, can I just say that, is also that it's extremely rigid. So, I mean, because it's not always, you know, an either or question, like English or Chinese or something, of course. Yeah. In everyday communication, as we all know, bilingual people communicate through languaging and code switching and in all kinds of ways. But um, academic journal articles, of course, are at the most rigid and extreme end of the monolingual spectrum. And um, so it's not only that we publish in English, but we publish in standard English that shouldn't have any traces of yeah, yeah. Well, that so that creates an additional barrier most regulated spaces yeah. most reg yeah, yeah. 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 I mean, when I, uh, Han, as you've said interesting tension really there it's often 
Now, many of us kind of raised against the monolingual mindset, but at the same time, when it comes to our own yes, yes. practices, it's quite highly regulated. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I feel and in, in higher education, you know, I'm just, um, hopefully I'm, I'm coming up with the proposals that we can do, not just to, to like, just validate our students' multilingualism, but use it, let them use it. Um, yes. So, you know, we, we, um, we can recognize that we can value it, but what are we asking them to, to do in languages other than English? Why can't they, um, uh, write a, if they write a paper, you know, like a cap for some kind of capstone project, um, before they graduate, why can't they take that, that paper, that information and disseminate it in another language through a blog or, you know, through a community organization. So I'm hoping to kind of put something together like that. Um, but it's going to be a lot of work, a lot of convincing people that it's a, a worthwhile endeavor. I think it is, but I know it's not going to be easy, but we have to start with something structurally. I think just, just giving, um, just talking about it and, you know, talking about being inclusive and I just feel like we're talking and talking and talking and talking and not really doing. I don't know how, like at your university or other other schools, like how how do you um, really let let students use multiple languages? Um, not really in our university. I mean, so it's it's very much an uh, Anglo university in an English speaking country or a country that sees itself as English speaking. Um, but I guess one thing that I would like to add to your thoughts kind of is that we see overall around the world, um, we see an increasing valorization of diversity and, and that's great. I mean, I think that really needs to happen. But at the same time, I think we also need to continue to critically examine how um, discourses of diversity can actually coexist with very exclusionary practices. And uh, one one issue that I see for people from minority backgrounds as they enter the academy in particular and how they, and, and as they grapple with these questions of um, uh, standard English, monolingualism, multilingualism, trans languaging, using all of their languages is of course, but this is really primarily up to them. I mean, it's, very interways of seeing and um, minoritized populations are also seen as linguistically deficient. So um, for anyone from um, a non-native, uh, you know, from a, or people of color, migrants, um, disadvantaged backgrounds or underprivileged backgrounds, um, to actually succeed, they'll always have to battle with double binds. On the one hand, um, they may want to use all their linguistic repertoire. On the other hand, if they do, they are still prone to be seen as linguistically deficient. And like, what's one person's creativity is another person's error, right? And so, so these kinds of tensions are something that I think one thing that we can do is actually help our students kind of to pearls with these tensions and learn yeah. to work with or learn to recognize them at least. I mean, that, yeah. that's not the most emancipatory thing we can do as teachers to, to talk to them about and, and, and really then talk about their experiences, but kind of acknowledge that it's not only something that we can do. I mean, we are actors and as, but at the same time, everyone's reach is limited. And um, so it's also about building new communities and, and um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, Khan, you wanted to say something I've been going on a bit. No. I um, I really want to discuss with you uh, the discourse of world Englishes. Mm -hmm. uh, if you um, have five minutes, uh, five minutes. Uh, yeah, <laughs> Ingrid, when I um, was introduced uh, this whole field of world Englishes, I 
I really admired it a lot because it it gave me how the field of English was um, attached to a few countries and how this was liberating. The whole scholarship was liberating. And coming from Pakistan and South Asia, I became very confident. I was talking to Professor Carla before the interview. Uh, I found myself as a legitimate teacher of English uh, because of this whole scholarship of world Englishes. So I, I was a great admirer initially when this was introduced to me. But when I was introduced uh, the field of multilingualism, uh, my professor taught me, then I started looking at the relationship between these two fields. And I, and I, was, I was finding them so puzzling because when I used to read Kachru uh, and other pioneers, I used to see the whole world through the lens of Englishes only, as if there was nothing in the world but English. And then from the other seminar, I, I had this bombardment of multilingualism that the world is entirely multilingual. In India, you drive 40 miles, you come across a new language. The relationship between these two, I've never been able to, you know, was understand this. Could you say something, how these two scholarships relate to one another? Um, I paid my proud, but well, um, I certainly would presume to be able to resolve those. Um, just just one one thought or two. The road NHS paradigm, of course, comes out of the out of the original sin of the modern world. It's um. It's a colonial paradigm. Ultimately, it comes out of colonialism and slavery. And um, even if you know, even if our academic discourses that we value all varieties of English and so on and so forth, um, it only actually makes sense within a colonial world. And um, so that's that about world Englishes. Now, um, of course, it has made immense contributions and. Um, and we continue to live during this colonial, post-colonial, in, in the world that was shaped by colonialism. So, of course, the way English works in that world is tied to our global order. So that's, that's a fact. And mm -hmm. that English predominates is a fact. And we try and find our way around it as we do as humans and um, as we try to navigate the world in which we live and make it a better place to the degree that we can. Um, now, how does this all relate to multilingualism? Yes. Um, why interesting um, relationship to many is actually and very interested in the history of the Mughal Empire and mm -hmm. uh, the, the Persian language. And so um, the Mughal Empire, for those who don't know, was kind of the, the trans-Asian empire, um, Muslim empire that um, existed in what is today pretty much the subcontinent and other parts of Central in Asia existed prior to British colonization. And now their, their imperial order was a highly multilingual imperial order. So um, Persian was the language yes. of some writing of the Kurds, yeah. and every educated person would learn how to write write in Persian and there was a whole class of scribes who um, you know got their livelihoods out of being able to read and write documents in Persian. But at the same time um Urdu and Hindi and um a, a wide variety of also literate and non-literate languages played important roles in art in um poetry in the imperial structure. And then there was the, the holy language of Islam, Arabic, but all wanted in the mix, kind of. And um, in the transition from the Mughal Empire to um, the British Empire, 
where he was actually used by the British in their administration of um, colonial India because yes. the people they needed to run the country, of course, were all those scribes and bureaucrats and the writers who um, spoke Persian. But gradually, Persian was being replaced by English, and not only plainly being replaced, but the more multilingual ecology was being changed over to um, a more monolingually oriented or English-centric ecology. And so um, I guess the way to maybe resolve the tension between the scholarship around multilingualism and the scholarship in world Englishes is actually to think about um, how these two linguistic orders are part of social orders. I Thank hope you. that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Yes, <laughs> I know. I'm just thinking and thinking now. Um, Ingrid, I don't know how much time you have. Actually, we didn't uh, talk about that. I don't want to overstep. You know, if I'm really enjoying this conversation at the same time, maybe we'll. Yeah. This also, I mean, you want to show this at your conference, right? So yeah. there will be a limit to how much time there is. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I do have one more question I want to sneak in. Um, I wrote this um, to you last night, and I, I pretty much um, just ended the question will we ever get over Hofstede um every <laughs> no it's just everybody goes back to that and and I'm just thinking I, I've had some lines like ways to respond but I just sometimes feel like I'm I'm, I'm just talking to a, a brick wall or something because it's of course I know why it's popular it's easy knowledge it's like oh yes we can just classify people's behaviors according to these these worldviews and, you know, uh, attach them to nations. And then uh, it's just, um, and then I, I, you know, I read the literature in our fields and I'm like, oh yeah, we're over that. But then I, I go to uh, a workshop or a webinar and I just, it comes back to me. And I, I don't know if I uh, wondered if you were experiencing some of that still, or, or, you know, I'm, I'm waiting for that like pithy kind of comeback I can have. <laughs> um, but it, it still, it just hangs on, doesn't it? I think this idea that we can just, um, first of all, um, define cultures in terms of national boundaries and then just define those um, cultures, those national cultures by things like individualism, collectivism, masculinity, femininity. And I, I'm just, uh, I'm... Um, no, it, it, it does hang on, but you know what? I mean, so many things... So many discourses are hanging on, and I'm kind of, um, um, you know, um, there's this, um, I, I think, um, St. Francis who said, you know, you God grant me the wisdom to change the things I can change and accept the things I can't change, and always know the difference between the two. And um, I think some of those, um, you know, forever essentialist discourses. <laughs> Yeah, I mean they're deplorable, but um, at the same time, it's not something I, at the moment, really want to waste my time on. Because um, life is short. Yes, I'll just uh, make sure people read your books. <laughs> How's that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This was a lovely conversation. I really enjoyed uh, yeah. talking to you guys. It was yeah. wonderful. Oh my gosh. It was great. Yeah. yeah. I hope to meet you. Yeah. Uh, I said at the beginning, I mean, I'm, there are always ways to look at the broader side too. And this is certainly one of the positive things and that has come out of this pandemic. We wouldn't have had this conversation if so. it hadn't been before the pandemic. And so um, I think, you know, one opportunity that I see is actually for greater engagement across national borders and across yeah. these kinds of barriers as we've or just, you know, kind of our lives have been sucked into Zoom. But um, 
we can really also use those to have these conversations amongst different people from different backgrounds and across borders. And so there is also this opportunity that you can reach out more. And that's, I think that's true. 